Well, good morning, Seven Mile Road. I am honestly quite sad to be speaking to you via a screen this morning. I was looking forward to worshiping inside of this room with people actually in the chairs. Maybe we'll look you in the eyes this morning. My family had a COVID exposure over the weekend and are quarantining from home. But here I am uh, recording on Saturday night in an empty auditorium so that I might be able to, to speak to you. I want you to know that I love you and I look forward to being with you again soon. I had an interesting conversation with my mom recently as she let me in on a little bit of a secret that Mima, the woman who married my papa late in life, had quite a crazy past. Now I've only known Mima late in life and she is one of my favorite people. This, she's in her 90s, as often happens with women and men in their 90s. She has slowly shrunk. She has a shock of white hair. She is a sweet woman who remembers everything that she's told, cares about my family, asks great questions. And I think of her as just precious little Mima. And my mom was letting me and some of my cousins and family members in on the secret that, you know, Mima, when she was young, she was kind of crazy. And if you get her going in the right moment, she can tell some stories about her past. And so we were laughing and talking a little bit about Mima and going, who knew? Who knew about old Mima? And uh, the truth is, though it's, it's somewhat comical, it, the reality is that everyone has a past. Everybody. We all have a past in one way or another. And this morning, what I want you to hear, my friends, my brothers, my sisters, what I want you to hear is this. Everyone has a past, but there is good news. Your past, my past, in light of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished, it does not define us. Your past does not define you. As we are in this season of Advent, waiting and longing and looking towards Jesus, as we are studying his genealogy together and paying particular attention to the, the women that were a part of his genealogy, and, and we're, 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 as we're studying these women and considering these stories, what we are saying is that you were never too far from the grace and the presence and the power of God. And last week we said that no matter how messy your family is, God's glorious family is able to work in and through the mess of your family. And this week, as we're going to study Rahab, the second woman in the genealogy of Jesus, what we're going to recognize together is this, that no matter how messy your past, it does not define you. And what we're going to find is, find is this, that, that present trust in Yahweh, the God of the Bible, present trust in Yahweh transforms a messy past into a redemptive future. Present trust in the God of the Bible transforms all of the mess and all of the shame and all of the guilt of the past into something that has promise and joy and hope. It is a redemptive future because present trust in Yahweh transforms messy past into redemptive future. We're gonna see that as we study the text that was just read for us about Rahab from Joshua 2 and Joshua 6. And what I'd like to do first is, by, is to sketch out what do we mean by a messy past? 
What do we mean by a messy past? In verses one to seven of Joshua chapter two, we were introduced to Rahab, this woman who is a part of Jesus's resume, part of his genealogy in Matthew chapter one. And what we learned about her is this. If you, if you look back at the text, it actually says um, that as the spies went into the land, they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and they lodged there. We learned that this woman was a prostitute living in Jericho. A woman who had been selling her body, living in a pagan society that is outside of relationship with God, that has, has heaped up such sin against the God and the creator of the universe that God is pouring out judgment on them through the Israelite people, that she lives among a sinful people and she among these sinful people is the foremost of sinners, a prostitute living in Jericho. As the story continues to unfold in those early verses, what we also find out is that she has a large family that she's concerned about. And we also learn that in verse, verse six, when she, when she hides the men, it says she, she brought them up to the roof. There were two spies that were, that were charting out the land from Israel and she brought them up on the roof and hid them under flax on her, on her roof. So as we're tying the, the details together in this story, trying to learn who is this Rahab. We learn that she's a prostitute who's from a large family, but she doesn't have a, a nuclear family, a husband or children living in her home. As best we can tell, she actually lives alone and, and working as a prostitute in the city. And she hides the spies under flax, which is an interesting detail. We learn in Proverbs 31 that it's the, it's the hardworking woman that, that harvests the flax and makes, makes clothing out of it, that, that this is actually a side hustle. This is hard work by a, a woman that's carving out her existence. What we see is that as best we can tell, reading between the lines, that Rahab's not a prostitute because she wants to be. She has no husband. She has a large family but lives by, her, by herself and is carving out an existence and doing so while trying to create secondary streams of income by having flax drying on her roof, enough flax to cover these two men and perhaps much more. What we learn is that this is a woman, we don't know why or how, but she is struggling, she is sinning, and she is doing whatever it takes to survive. This is Rahab, she's got a messy past. She's been through a lot. And we know that in our own past that we all, we all have a messy past. Some of us have a messy past like Rahab's in the sense that we have survival sin. I was walking with a friend years ago that uh, had been abused by her father early in life. And by the time she was about 14 or 15, she had to defend herself and try to provide for herself. And in that state of desperation had made a series of really devastating decisions so much so that she walked around in life with her shame and her guilt like a cloak around her. It was always with her. It was always wrapped around her. It was like in every conversation with her, you were dealing with her, but you were also dealing with the thick reality of her shame and her guilt surrounding her. She had made a series of decisions out of desperation and it was, it was survival sin. Sin that started because sin, other things had been done to her and that she had responded to in desperation. Some of you may feel that way. Like you have skeletons in your closet, you have shame and guilt in your past and, and in some ways it's like a survival sin because you were exposed and just working out of desperation and confusion. Others of you might say, you know, that's not really my story but I have stubborn sin. Not, 
not survival sin, but stubborn sin. I actually was raised in a, in a godly family. I, I had parents that loved God and taught the Bible to me, but I was always the sort of person that had to touch the stove to know it was hot. It wasn't enough for mom and dad to tell me to be careful. You know, th- this is kind of the old, the old preacher's kid syndrome, that idea of being raised so close to truth that you have to rebel or be stubborn against it. And, and it may be that some of you feel like, I don't know how I ended up here with the series of decisions I've made, the guilt that I feel. I should have known better, but I always had to touch the stove. And as a result, I've constantly had singed fingers. That might be you. It might be that you have a story that's marked by some shame and some guilt from from stubborn sin, thinking I should have known better. And still others might say, neither one of those really capture my story. But it might be that you you have sin. You might have always been kind of the model child, student, employee that did everything right and people go, oh, that's the poster child. They do it right. But oftentimes this is the most insidious of all the most shameful of all because you know in the secret places what no one else knows. You know how dark it can be in the hidden spots in your heart, your mind, that moment when no one is looking. And as a result, the skeletons feel the most ominous because they speak in the secret. They speak where no one else hears. And you think, ah, if people really knew. Now, now listen, We all have a messy past. Everyone, every pastor, elder, church staff member, every meemaw, every mom, every dad, we all have mess in our past. And the question is, what are we gonna do with it? And and quite frankly, Rahab is a beautiful story to study because what we see in her story is we see how does someone break away from a messy past? How is someone transformed into a totally different future? And what we see in verses eight to 21 in Rahab's story is a woman that displays genuine saving faith. The sort of present trust that transforms a messy past into a redemptive future. And I wanna, I wanna look at it with you because in some ways what we have is, is the anatomy of saving faith. We have the inner workings of what happens in present trust that transforms someone's story. If you look back at verse eight, it says, before the men lay down, these spies that had been surveying the land, she had come up to them on the roof and she had said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Let me just give a little context here. The Israelites are out in the desert. They've been waiting 40 years to come into the promised land. And what Rahab is saying is that that I know that the God you serve is going to give you this land. She has a settled confidence that God is going to move in power, pouring out judgment on those outside of relationship with him while giving blessing and life to those who are in relationship with him. She knows it. And the reason she knows is she says in verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and, when, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. What she's saying is, I know that God's going to give you this land because I know the past. I've actually surveyed the past and I know the God of the Exodus, the God who set you free, who drowned the powerful army of the Egyptians in the waters of the Red Sea. I know that he did that. 
And she goes on to say that in light of having this settled confidence based on the past, she actually says, and I dare to believe that he might be able to deliver me too. Look at it with me in the text. In verses 11 through 13, she says this, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God and the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She has come to believe that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is in fact the God of heaven and earth. This is a profound statement of faith that this woman's making because in that time, everyone had a God, a God of this city, of this area. There were provincial gods, gods that, that existed under the, the parameters of a particular country line or a particular people. But she said, no, 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 what I've come to believe is that your God is the God. Yahweh is Elohim. And I believe that the one that delivered you from Egypt might actually be able to deliver me. And after she makes this proclamation of faith, she matches that faith with action and public symbolism. She hides the men at great risk to herself. She lies to the king of Jericho's men and says, I don't know where they are. They've already left. You better go search them out elsewhere. Now, What Rahab is doing in this moment and lying to the king's men is putting her life on the line for the statement of faith that she has made. She's saying, I so believe this that with all of my life, I'm in. And the men actually give her a public symbol, a symbol of her faith to show that she believes it. It says, In verse 20 and 21, it says, if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. And she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Previously in their discussion, what the men had told her is that that scarlet cord would be a declaration to the Israelites that she had come to trust in their God. Now for a woman that was deeply acquainted with the story of the Exodus, she would understand the symbolism of what she was participating in. She had already said, I know that your God is the God of the Exodus. And what we know about the story of Exodus that in the 10th plague, when God poured out judgment on the Egyptians, he said, listen, if you trust me, put the blood of a lamb on your door. And when my judgment is poured out in Egypt, I will come to a door where there is blood on the, on, the, on the doorway and I will say, this one has trusted me and my judgment will pass over that house. For a woman that is acquainted with Exodus and for men who come from the Israelite people that have been, been uh, set free in the Exodus, they would all understand the beauty and the power of the symbolism of a scarlet cord hanging out of the window that what this woman is doing is she's making a public declaration to all of the Israelites, I have come to believe that your God is a deliverer. You see the anatomy of saving faith for this woman was a settled confidence based off of past deliverance in the true God and she so believes it that she matches it with her life and she wants everyone to see it publicly. This is the sort of present trust that transforms her story and it still bubbles up and is still displayed in similar ways today. 
You see, we don't look back to the Exodus, but we look back to Jesus, the one who has set us free in his death and his resurrection. And Leslie Newbegin, missiologist, says, the apologetic for Christianity is the Christian community. In essence, he says, the thing that is proving to the world that our God is a God of deliverance is the people of God who've been delivered. I remember in college, I had a roommate who started to bring an acquaintance around our house. And this acquaintance had a very difficult past. She believed herself to be beyond the reach of God's grace or love or presence. But she started to spend time with the folks that lived in our house, but then also our larger community that was all part of a campus ministry. We were laboring to love Jesus, not perfectly, but truly. We loved him and we wanted our lives to show it. And as she started to spend time in this community, what she realized is there's something different. That the way these people love one another, that the experience that they have had of the presence of God is changing them. And she started to warm towards it. She started to actually wonder, maybe, just maybe, whatever it is that's changing them could change me. And it was one of the most exciting things for our group in college was to see this woman come to saving faith in our home, coming to trust and to believe that in Jesus and his death and his resurrection, that she had come to to know that God came for me. He loves me. He could deliver me. And then the public declaration to the community of God that I am in with this God became the waters of baptism. You see that, that Rahab hangs the scarlet cord to say to the community of faith, I'm with you. And still today, when we come to see and to trust the love of God as the delivering king, we say to the the community of faith, I'm with you by entering the waters of baptism. You see, present trust that transforms a messy past into a redemptive future still works in the same way today as it did for Rahab then. My question to you is, have, have you placed present trust and the God of the Bible who has found the fullness of his deliverance in Jesus. If if you're listening in and you've been spending time with the community seeing the way that God is at work in those around you and you've yet to place your trust in Jesus, I would say, would you make today the day where you say, ah, the love of God has come and the person and the work of Jesus. He's come to ransom and to rescue me and that he can deliver me. And through the waters of baptism, would you declare to the community, I'm in with him. This is the present trust that Rahab is displaying that that transforms her story. But you see, as, as her story is transformed by placing faith in the God who saves, she moves away from a messy past and she's delivered into a redemptive future. And I want us to just explore this a bit together as a community. Would you look at at Joshua 6, verses 22 to 25? And what we see here is this, a little sketch of what does it mean for her to be rescued, delivered into something new? It says this, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, so that The people of God have finally come. They've encircled Jericho. They're about to sack the city. And just outside what Joshua, the conqueror, is saying to the spies, he says this, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. 
So the young men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all her relatives and they put them outside the camp of Israel and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And the moment that God pours out judgment on Jericho, the, the army comes and marches circles around Jericho and eventually they actually blow their trumpets on the seventh day and the walls of Jericho fall down and in this moment of God's judgment being poured out on the city, God remembers the transforming trust of this woman and she's delivered. Can you imagine what the experience would have been like for her and her extended family huddled together in her home with their hearts racing as they hear the soldiers marching around the city. They've got the scarlet cord out the window and they're going, we know that this God delivers. We believe he's going to deliver. And when the trumpets blow and there's this great crashing of the wall, her home, which is built into the city wall, stands. Quite possibly the only portion of the wall that doesn't crumble that that is marked by the, the scarlet cord. And as she and her family are beginning to, to hope and say, he really is the God who has delivered. And then there's a knock at the door and the spies come and they say, you have to leave with this now. The judgment of God is coming. And she and her whole family are ushered out of the city and they watch back as the, as the fire is poured out on the city as the Israelites pour out the righteous judgment of God. Can you imagine if she is rescued radically from the righteous judgment of God? And then she's integrated into the community. That text, did you hear it? It says she has lived as a part of the community to this day. She didn't look at Israel as the enemy that burned her city. She looked at them as her new family that rescued her from judgment. She said, I wanna live with them. I want you to be my family and she's integrated into the covenant family of God. She is so deeply welcomed that we actually learn in subsequent stories, ultimately in the genealogy of Jesus, that there was a man named Salmon who actually married her. He took this prostitute from the pagan city and he brought her into his home and he loved her as his bride and she conceived and she bore a child. She became the treasured wife, the mother, and then she became grandmother and great-grandmother. She became Meemaw. This is Rahab, part of the covenant family of God, the great-great-grandmother of David, the great king and the lineage of Jesus himself. You see, her redemptive future was as a woman that wasn't carving it out on her own. She wasn't striving to make ends meet doing whatever was required, even being willing to sell herself to sin and to engage in wickedness, but now she was the beloved. Mom, Mima, this is Rahab. And beautifully, she gets mentioned twice in the New Testament, Hebrews 11 and James 2. She is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, noted as by her faith she was saved because she welcomed the spies. James 2 says her faith was not alone. It was her works justified her because she put her life on the line to rescue these spies. One interesting note that stuck out to me 
Each time she's mentioned in Joshua and then again in Hebrews 11 and again in James 2, interestingly, all the way to the end, she is noted as Rahab, the prostitute. What an interesting thing. I was wrestling with that, wondering why was she not Rahab, the one who had been washed white as snow? Rahab, who, who uh, rescued the spies and delivered the people. Maybe she'd be Rahab, Mima, Rahab, great, great grandmother of David, but no, she gets mentioned multiple times in the New Testament as Rahab the prostitute. Does this mean that her past defined her? No, <laughs> no. It's so glorious, it's not that. Her past and your past, our past, when we come to be washed by the blood of Jesus and are made new, it doesn't, and made new, it doesn't define us, but we also never deny it. It's part of our story, and in fact, that messy past that we thought was locking us in closets of shame and guilt, that very messy past begins the, becomes the window by which we behold the glories of the redemption of God. Your past not only doesn't define you, it is the, the window to the vistas of the glory of God. That Rahab is noted for well over a thousand years as being the prostitute because it screams of the glory of the hero of the story. You see, the story of the Bible is not a, a story of hero after hero after hero. What, is it? what it is is a story of failure after failure after failure, messy past after messy past after messy past, but then a baby in a manger erupts onto the scene and there is one, there is one who, who has no messy past. He is sinless from day one. He lives the life we were supposed to live. And then he dies the death that a messy past demands. And as he rips open the grave, what he says is the, the way has been opened. Bring all of your mess to me and I will make you new. <laughs> you see, she's Rahab the prostitute for the rest of her life, not because it defines her, but because it screams of the glories of her redeemer. It's like, the, it's like the addict that carries his sobriety chip or her sobriety chip in the pocket. And every time that they reach in and they hold on to it and they say, I'm a year clean or 10 years clean or 30 years clean, what they're saying is I'm not who I used to be, but I'll never forget who I was. Because the truth is that the miracle is daily and the celebration is continual because we do have a past but our past does not define us. We are free and whole in the grace of the God of Exodus, the grace of the God of the Old Testament who has found the fullness and the baby in the manger, the man on the cross and the empty tomb that in Jesus what we have heard is this, that through present trust in this God, our messy past is transformed into a redemptive future. And so we with Paul say we are the foremost among sinners, riddled with a messy past, but we have a glorious future because of the one that we celebrate in this Advent season. Brothers and sisters, <laughs> receive this good news. Your past doesn't define you. By present trust in Jesus, our messy our messy past is transformed into a redemptive future and that 
is cause for celebration. Amen. Let me pray. Oh God, thank you. Thank you that you didn't leave us in our mess, though that's what we deserved. You didn't have to come save us. You didn't have to save Rahab to come to her home and knock on her door and and knit her story into yours. And then you do that over and over and over again. Every one of us that has called out to Jesus in faith, it is a miracle. It's a miracle that you came knocking on the door of our heart and you said, I wanna display my love and salvation and my power to you. And that you, by your grace, open the eyes of our hearts to see that we are not locked in the devastation and the shame and the guilt of our past. Thank you. Jesus, we wanna celebrate you rightly this Christmas season. Open up our hearts and help us to celebrate fully, not denying our past, but naming it and naming it in freedom and fullness, saying, look at what he rescued me from. We bless you, Jesus, and we thank you. You are our hero, our king, our savior. We bless you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.